You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Let's continue reading from John chapter 19, starting in verse 28. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled." Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather this evening to remember, to recall, to enter ourselves yet again into the narrative of Christ's crucifixion, we are grateful that your word is a sure and steady guide. Lord, that betrays Christ and his suffering and his glory. Father, as we meditate upon the cross of Christ tonight, we pray that he, Jesus, would be lifted high, cherished in our hearts. As we look at the demands and the cost of our sin, and as we look at the lavishness of your love poured out to us in the sacrifice of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, on Good Friday, it's a day by which we set aside to reflect, to remember, to uh, meditate upon the death of Christ. Indeed, we do use our sanctified imagination, if you will, to relive that day, to imagine what it must have been like to be like John or one of the other disciples to watch Christ in his sufferings and in his crucifixion. And the day of Good Friday is a glorious day because on that day, Christ died for our sins. But it is a horrific day. It is both glorious and horrific, isn't it? It's glorious because our salvation was accomplished by Jesus. Forgiveness was provided once for all. Atoning blood was spilt for our sins, but it was horrific also because the innocent son of God was crushed in his suffering. 
He was mocked by the world. He was swallowed up in death. But it's on that both glorious and horrific day that we see both the love and justice of God on full display. We see both his mercy and his wrath, his compassion and his holiness. You see, the monsoon of God's love pours out on us as Jesus drowns in our deserved judgment. Put simply, without the cross of Christ, there is no gospel. There is no good news. There is no hope in the world. We deserve the excruciating pain of God's eternal judgment. And it is only the horrible cross of Christ by which God vindicates his holiness and so enables his mercy upon sinners like us. And so as we ponder this evening on that glorious and horrific day, may the Lord leave us in somber joy and broken gladness with a mingling of both tears and happiness. For Jesus has died for us. Over the course of this Easter weekend, we will be setting our attention on John chapter 19 and John 20. And so this evening, we set our mind on John chapter 19, the crucifixion account in John's gospel. And so for the sermon this evening, we focus our attention specifically on verses 28 through 37 in our text where the apostle records the events of Jesus's death and what happens to his body after his death. Each gospel writer gives us a different unique vantage point on the events of Jesus's death. And John writes as an eyewitness to the crucifixion. He's standing right there. He's watching it. He can hear Jesus speaking to him from the cross. And so John highlights specific details of what happened at Jesus's death in order to understand not only how Jesus died, but why Jesus died. John doesn't give us every detail of Jesus's sufferings upon the cross, but he hones in on specific, specific instances, specific snapshots in order to help us to see what is actually taking place on the cross of Christ. So in our passage this evening, we are going to first see that Jesus died to fulfill the scriptures. And then secondly, we will see that Jesus died to finish his mission. So let's first think through how Jesus died to fulfill the scriptures. Now, as John gives us his testimony, he wants us to understand, maybe you picked it up as we read the text moments ago. John wants us to understand that the details of Jesus's crucifixion happened exactly in accordance with what God's word said would happen. It happened in accordance with the scriptures. You see, we, when we think of the cross, we can make a grave mistake when we do. We, we, could, we could merely think of Jesus on that cross as some sort of helpless victim, caught within the torrents of tension between a Jewish and Roman culture, and we can easily begin to think of Jesus' death at the, at the hands of these unjust men as a tragic story of some unfortunate martyr who found himself at the wrong place and at the wrong time. 
And John wants to dismiss away any such nonsense notion like that. Jesus was not a victim of random happenstance. Jesus died at the hands of unjust men, yes, but everything happened exactly as the scriptures said it would. You see, everything that happened on that Good Friday happened according to the providential governance of a sovereign God. Notice how John repeatedly emphasizes over and over again the fulfillment of scripture in John 19. He's not just blowing hot air. He's wanting us to see the significance of this. You see, as the soldiers cast lots over Jesus' garments, look at verse 24. John tells us in verse 24, why did they do this? Well, this was to fulfill scripture. Before, Before Jesus said, I thirst, in verse 28, John tells us Jesus said that. He said, I thirst. Why? To fulfill scripture. And as John recounts the events of what happens with Jesus's body after his death, he tells us that the soldiers did not break his leg and that they pierced his side. All that took place, John says in verse 36. Why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. You see, Jesus himself said earlier in John's gospel, scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. And indeed, it cannot be broken. As the Proverbs tell us, every word of God proves true. So as John holds up before us the crucified Christ, he has an aim. He has a mission, if you will, indeed in his old gospel, but certainly here in John 19. He wants us to believe upon Christ, to believe upon him. And if we are unconvinced in our doubt that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Word enfleshed, then John confronts us with the testimony of prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus' death, describing exactly, exactly how God planned for his Son's death to take place. Good Friday is a dark day, but it's also a providential day. R.C. Sproul described it like this. He says, the cross was not an accident of history, but it came to pass through the invisible hand of a sovereign providence. Let's look at each one of these, these aspects of scripture's fulfillment that John highlights here in John 19. Let's look at them a little bit more closely. The first one that he mentions is the garments, the garments. Paul describes the stripping Excuse me, John describes the stripping of, of Jesus' garments in verse 23. And, and while the four soldiers seemingly had an arrangement to split the clothing among themselves into four parts, Jesus' tunic, the most valuable piece of his clothing, was a seamless piece. So rather than damaging the garment and ruining its value and ripping it apart so that each soldier would receive a portion of the fabric, they decided to cast lots for the tunic to see who would get that share. And John helps us to recognize that the soldiers gambling over Jesus' clothing, guess what? It was predicted in the scripture. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Did the Roman soldiers conspire together to fulfill a Jewish prophecy that they didn't know even existed? Certainly not. They're Gentile pagans. 
knowing nothing of such prophecy from Jewish scripture. But yet, as Christ is stripped naked, the mocking soldiers having their fun, casting lots, are in fact acting in accordance to God's providential will. Scripture cannot be broken. Let's look at the sour wine. As Jesus comes close to his death in verse 28, what does he say? He says, I thirst. For a second time, John interjects in order to remind us that Jesus said this also to fulfill scripture. And John seems to insinuate by the way he puts it in verse 28, that Jesus said this intentionally, self-consciously as an act of himself fulfilling scripture in that given moment. That even in his final moments, Jesus is cognizant, realizing that his death is happening exactly as his father planned, and he is accomplishing his father's plan. And so before his death, Jesus requests a drink. Perhaps when Jesus says, I thirst, and I think indeed most likely, Jesus is alluding to the entirety of Psalm 69, as he indicates He is the innocent sufferer. Let me read you an excerpt of what I think Jesus is alluding to. Psalm 69, verse 19 19 through 21. The psalmist says, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. You see, in Mark's gospel, we are told that earlier before the cross, that Jesus refused wine mixed with myrrh on his way to the cross. Now, why would Jesus reject a drink before the cross and receive one right before his death? Well, the wine mixed with myrrh was, in fact, a sedative. It was the Tylenol of the day, the morphine, if you will. It was given to dull the pain of the cross. And Jesus refuses any anesthetic to experience every sharp pain of his wounds. He doesn't want them dulled in even the slightest way. But moments before his death, he declares his thirst not to dull his pain, but to prolong his pain. So they give him sour wine sometimes translated as vinegar. Sour wine was cheap. It was used by the soldiers for quick hydration and a pinch. And so they took a hyssop branch, soaked the uh, nest-like end of the hyssop branch, and they held it up to Jesus' mouth in order for him to drink. And so Jesus extends his life by his own request in order to fully complete his work on the cross, yes, but also to fulfill the scriptures. Even in that simple statement, I thirst, Jesus is telling us that he is the innocent sufferer, that he is the one experiencing shame and dishonor with no one to show compassion or pity upon him. And on the cross, Jesus recognized that his death was the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Jesus knew that that was happening in that given moment. And his work of suffering occurred at the prediction of scripture. And scripture cannot be broken. And so we go from the garments to the sour wine to thirdly, the unbroken legs. After Jesus bowed his head and after he gave up his spirit, John describes the handling of the body also as a fulfillment of scripture. 
Jesus died on Friday. And Friday evening marked the start of the Jewish Sabbath. The Jews did not like the grotesque horrors of crucifixion to defile their day of rest. Kind of ruins the whole resting thing when you have bloody corpses hanging up on trees. And so the Jews requested that Pilate would speed up the crucifixion by breaking the legs of those being crucified that day. Now, death by crucifixion typically took many days. Victims of crucifixion would die slowly, and the Romans were not in a hurry to bring you down. In fact, they left you up there until the vultures would come by and pick at your flesh. Sometimes you were still alive. But even after death, the Romans just kind of left you up there, rotting away publicly until you were eventually devoured by vultures and your bones fell to the ground. And so on occasion, though, the Romans did permit bodies to be taken down from crosses, particularly on feast days and celebrations. So the Jews, going into their Sabbath weekend, and not just any Sabbath, but the Sabbath of the weekend of Passover, did not want Jesus' corpse defiling their observance. How ironic. So to speed up the death, the soldiers would use an iron mallet to crush the legs of those hanging upon the cross. And without the use of the legs, those crucified could no longer push up with their feet off the nails in order to take their next breath. So breaking the legs of those on the cross ensured a quick death by asphyxiation. So as the soldiers go up to the two men being crucified by Jesus, those two guys are still alive. And so they take the hammer to the legs in order to speed up their deaths. But when they get to Jesus, John tells us, that they discovered that Jesus was already dead. Jesus, so wounded by his flogging and by the carrying of his cross, was weak and frail even before the nails were put into his hands. He's barely hanging on to life. And so thus the soldiers had no need to break Jesus's legs. John tells us in verse 36 that this too, this fact, this reality also is a fulfillment of scripture. Not one of his bones will be broken. John points us here to Christ as the definitive Passover lamb. As it was forbidden to break the legs of the Passover sacrifice. And so Jesus not only fulfills the Passover, but he fulfills Psalm 34, describing that even in Christ's death, the Lord will protect his servant ultimately anticipating the great victory of resurrection that would come on Sunday morning. So Psalm 34 verse 17 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So the Roman soldiers, by not breaking Jesus's legs, fulfill God's word. The perfect Passover lamb did not have his legs crushed. God's word always proves true, and scripture cannot be broken. And so we go from considering the broken legs now, fourthly, to the pierced side, the pierced side. In order to make sure that Jesus was dead, the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And John describes that blood and water flowed to the ground. 
Now, some have gotten quite fanciful with their interpretations of blood and water, suggesting that it might refer to the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper, but, but, but John's meaning is actually quite plain. Jesus died as a human being in the flesh, that he had a real body. He wasn't a hollow of a man or a phantom of a man or an imagined man, merely appearing like a man. But at the pierce of the spear, which most likely struck his lungs and his heart, it dumped to the ground all the human fluid of normal, ordinary flesh, just like us. John includes this detail in order to combat the heresy that Jesus only appeared human and to refute the idea that Jesus wasn't really dead. John saw it. The spear went through his side. Jesus died. Flesh and blood, just like us. And the Roman soldiers were experts at killing. And so they ensured by that piercing of the spear that Jesus truly died. But, but John also indicates that this detail of the piercing of the spear shows us yet again scripture being fulfilled at Jesus' crucifixion, particularly the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah predicted the coming of the Messiah, and he describes how the Messiah would be pierced, but then would go on to provide salvation for God's people. Let me read you from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. The prophet writes, and I will pour out the house on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so as the soldiers puncture the internal organs of Christ, they fulfill God's word in their cruelty, and in their expertise of execution, they fulfill the prophecy of Scripture. And God's word cannot be broken. Why does John go to such detail over Jesus' crucifixion? Why does he talk about the garments? Why does he zone in on the sour wine? Why does he go to detail to explain the, un, the unbroken legs and the, and the pierced side of Jesus? He wants us to recognize. He wants us to see. He doesn't want us to miss the fact that as Jesus hangs upon the cross, God's word is coming true. Jesus died exactly according to the predetermined plan of God. And everything God says comes to pass. And Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all of God's word, all of God's promises. He is the Messiah. He is the suffering servant. And the details of Jesus' death complete the prophetic predictions. So scripture, John says, by its own testimony, verifies and proves that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. You see, the sufferings of Jesus on the cross should give us great confidence as we look to him that his identity, he is the promised one of God, even as his sufferings move us to great tears. So while the how of Jesus' death happens in accordance with the scriptures, the why of Jesus's death will help us stand amazed at the cross of Christ this evening. For at the cross, Jesus died to complete, to fulfill his messianic mission. And that leads secondly to Jesus died to finish his mission. 
Jesus' final words recorded in John 19, verse 30, it is finished, is actually just one word. And in his final moments, Jesus declared not only his fulfillment of the scripture, it's complete, it's fulfilled, I've accomplished it, but that the entire work of redemption that the father has sent him to do, he has completed that work. The job is done. You see, the feast of Passover loomed over Jesus's entire last week in Jerusalem. The crowds overflowed Jerusalem that final week. And Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples in that upper room Thursday evening, recasting the celebration of Passover with his disciples in light of his looming death. This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus's great work, he tells us, is to be the definitive and the final Passover lamb. The Passover event in Israel's history was the key act of God's redemption and deliverance. As God brought the people out of the slavery of Egypt and he freed them and liberated them. And how did he do it? Well, the plague of the death of the firstborn came upon the entire land. And the Lord in his mercy passed over the houses of Israel who were marked by the blood of an unblemished lamb that was dashed upon the frame of their doors. The Passover was an act of judgment upon Egypt and an act of mercy upon Israel. And it achieved the full redemption and liberation of God's people. And on the week of Passover, Jesus, the perfect son of God, lays down his life for us upon the cross as the definitive Passover lamb. And so the apostle Paul would call Christ, indeed in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he would refer to him as our Passover lamb. This is who Jesus is, the hyssop in the passage, the, the unbroken bones, the mingled blood at the cross. All of that, as John portrays it, is helping us see and identify that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And how is Jesus like a Passover lamb? Well, first he's unblemished, isn't he? Jesus was perfect, spotless, without sin, or stain. He completely obeyed the commandments of God, completely fulfilling the law. And while every human being, including you and including me, as we're all sinners, Jesus alone qualifies as the perfect human being. Therefore, Jesus alone could be the Passover lamb. Only he could substitute himself. And that's the second way we see Jesus functioning as our Passover lamb. He was our substitute. Jesus dies in the place of sinners. And so the cross is the great reminder of our deserved judgment. Jesus's curse ought to have been ours. His sufferings ought to have been our sufferings. His cross should have belonged to us. But Jesus takes the blow of God's wrath in our place. Just as the Passover lamb died in the place of the firstborn Israelite, so does Jesus die in the place of sinners like us. Third, Jesus' blood atones for our sin. It atones for our sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. None whatsoever. Blood is demanded. And God's holy justice demands not just anybody's blood. God's justice demands your blood and my blood. 
But as Christ substitutes himself for us, Jesus provides the atonement we so desperately need. His blood is poured out as he's crushed in our place. And God's wrath is satisfied by the death of his perfect son. His justice is vindicated and his goodness preserved. Fourth, Jesus's blood must be applied by faith must be applied by faith. At the first Passover, the Israelite had to apply the blood of the Passover lamb to his home. Placing the blood of the lamb above your door was an act of faith, of trust, of confidence that God would indeed spare and be merciful to every home marked by the blood of the Passover lamb. And so it is that God is merciful to every person washed clean by the blood of Christ. But yet that blood must be applied by faith. The forgiveness of the cross, as wonderful it is, is not available to all, but only to those who repent and believe upon Christ. And so Jesus accomplishes by his death, his messianic mission and purpose. The word became flesh in order to die in the place of sinful flesh. That the eternal son became the son of man in order to deliver us from death. And by the death of Christ, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin once and for all. Paul writes in Romans, for the death he died to sin once for all. The author of Hebrews preached, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so as Jesus cries out before his death, it is finished. He is heralding the messianic completion of his work, that the Passover lamb has been slaughtered finally, once and for all. And so what the blood of bulls and of goats could never do or accomplish, the blood of Jesus Christ is effective. When he cries, it is finished, he shuts down the priesthood of Aaron by his own better priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. He closes the altar once and for all for any future sacrifice. It's not needed anymore. The work has been done. And he rips the curtain in the temple from top to bottom, separating God and humanity. It's not needed anymore. Now that Christ has come and he has died, the way to God is open for all who would come in. And so Christ fulfills the scripture. He completes his work of suffering. And he gives up his life in obedience to the Father and in great love for us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Christ has laid down his life for us. The whip of the lashes, the shame and derision, the stinging nails, the gaping wounds, the judgment and curse of God all belong to you and to me. But yet in matchless love, Christ lays down his life for us. He goes to the cross and it is finished. And so there's no more work for us to do. None. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. All of salvation comes by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So I implore you this evening on behalf of God, be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust 
in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and humble yourself before such a blessed and merciful Savior. As we respond to Christ this evening, the only response, the proper response, the only response that we ought to have is belief, is faith. Indeed, that is exactly what the Apostle John wants us to do in response to this text. In fact, he tells us quite plainly, he wants us to believe. Look at verse 35. Look at how the Apostle interjects in the middle of the narrative. He doesn't want to miss it. He can't help but preemptively make his appeal. He says, he who saw it, referring to himself, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. John is telling us, I've seen this with my own eyes. I watched it happen. I watched scripture be fulfilled. And I believe upon Christ as the son of God who has come into the world to wash away the sins of the world. And I implore you, I plead with you, will you believe? I'm not lying to you. I saw it. God has completed the work in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe upon him. John saw the nails hammered into his teacher's hands. He saw the pain in his master's voice. He heard that triumphant cry with his own ears. It is finished. And John has written this gospel. He's written this text so that you and I might believe upon Christ. He's telling us the truth. Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. So if you are here this evening, I pray that you have or that you will put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith, believe upon God's son, the Passover lamb. He is the one who has laid down his life for us. So repent of your sins and place your faith in the finished work of Christ. We can have all sorts of responses to the cross and the world has many of them, but pity and tears mean nothing without repentance and faith. Do not come here this evening only to feel sorry for Jesus. No, the Savior demands your belief, not your grief. The blood of the Lamb is only effective if you apply it to your life by faith. And without the blood of Christ, without his blood covering your sin, friend, you will face the judgment of God for your sin. And the consequences will be eternal death and you will be found guilty. Why, why would you spurn so perfect of a savior as Jesus only to remain in your prideful indifference to the cross? God has provided you a substitute. He's provided you redemption. He's provided atonement and the sacrifice of his own beloved son. Friend, I implore you, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from the wrath to come. And if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at Christ upon the cross this evening, may we marvel and humble worship. As we worship, we shed tears of joy and gladness. And tonight, we are reminded of the horrors of our sin. At the cross, we see what we deserve, but yet God has had mercy upon us. He has given us his son. And in love, Jesus has laid down his life for us. The eternal son makes himself a slave for our sake. And so in our tears of joy, may our hearts burst this evening with thanksgiving. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May we be reminded this evening of our helplessness apart from Jesus. 
And may we rejoice in God's provision of Christ and may we worship him in humility. One of my favorite hymns this time of year is a hymn called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Let the final verse remind us of what hope we have because of Christ's death. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation, is the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come with great humility. As we look at the cross, we see our sin. We see our deserved judgment. We see the condemnation that we rightfully deserve. But Lord, we marvel that Christ fulfills the scriptures, that he dies according to your purposes and plans, and that he dies for our redemption so that we might be the recipients of your love, of your forgiveness, of your grace. God, as we respond to the cross this evening, we pray that you would give everyone in this room faith. Those who have already repented and believed upon Christ, I pray that their strength, their faith has been strengthened in response to the reading and preaching of your word. And as they've looked upon Christ this evening. And Father, I pray for those in this room who might not have faith in Christ. Lord, that they today might respond to John's invitation. That they might believe upon Jesus for their forgiveness of their sins and for eternal life. God, as we mourn the sufferings of our Savior, we worship you. We praise you. We give thanks to you. And we are amazed at your great kindness to us in the cross of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.